Hello again, Ars Technica readers. This is the third and final installment of a three-part interview with Rodney Brooks, who is one of the most influential people in the worlds of robotics and AI. If you haven't yet heard part one or two, there are links to them on the page where this player is embedded, and I strongly suggest that you go back and listen to those installments before this one. And with that, back to my conversation with Rodney Brooks. Yeah, let's talk about deep learning. Deep learning is the one that has enabled so much. Machine learning in general is on a lot of people's tongues. I saw it in an NFL ad recently saying we're going to bring machine learning to give you better diagnostics of players in real time with Amazon Cloud. So deep learning is based on a technology called neural nets, which depending on how you look, the first paper was 1943, McCulloch and Pitts really became in the 60s something that people were investigating. There's a famous book by Marvin Minsky and Seymour Papert called Perceptrons, which analyzes those neural nets. And then in the late 70s to early 80s, there was a breakthrough algorithm called backpropagation, which let the weights that are in these things, which are sort of vaguely related to synapses in the brain, let those be updated from the results of an example. And backpropagation at the time, completely overestimated in the short term. Thought it was the big thing. Backpropagation is one of the key aspects of deep learning. And fairly soon people realized, okay, it can do certain things, can't do as much as we thought. Most people moved on. Then there were support vector machines. There were all sorts of other machine learning algorithms. Flavor of the decade, flavor of the decade. A few people, Jeff Hinton at Toronto University, Jan LeCun, who was there at that point, later moved to Bell Labs, later NYU, kept pushing on backpropagation. Then around 2012, it popped. Jan McCun is chief scientist at Facebook now, runs an enormous lab worldwide for Facebook. Jeff Hinton is at Google and University of Toronto, and it performs better than anyone expected. It was viewed as, all oh, those guys, they're working on that old problem. They're good guys, they're making slow progress, but yeah, it's never really going to go anywhere. It was one of a hundred things like that. We had no idea that backpropagation was going to pop. We don't know whether any of those others are going to pop that way. In hindsight, there's no indication that it was going to be backpropagation, which was the one that popped. And there's no indication of how general it's going to be. Yeah. The people who are seeing it for the first time are saying, wow, this is fantastic. This and look how far it's come in four look years. Look how far it's come. Yeah. And I've had people, people that you have interviewed, people that you have interviewed, say, but, but, Don't things happen on a regular basis? Shouldn't we expect the next one, the next one, the next one? We don't know. We don't know. We knew with Moore's Law that we were going to be able to continue to half the feature size on a fairly regular basis for a long time. We knew that was going to happen. People got trained to things getting exponentially better. And people think, well, that's how everything works. No, science doesn't work that way. Research doesn't work that way. And all of these things take a long time, like the self-driving cars. They don't just pop. It just doesn't come out of nowhere. And again, there's that time frame distortion that you pointed to with self-driving cars. I mean, even as somebody who's fairly sophisticated in the field, my perception is that deep learning has gone from zero to 60 in two or three years, but it's over many, many decades. And to quote something you wrote in one of your blog posts, many people seem to think we'll continue to see AI performance increase by equal multiples on a regular basis. But the deep learning success was 30 years in the making and 
it was an isolated event. Going back to your predictions, I think somewhat playfully you predicted by 2020, the popular press will start having stories that the era of deep learning is over. No earlier than 2021, VCs will figure out that for an investment to pay off, there needs to be something more than X plus deep learning equals profits. And then between 2023 and 2027, you predict the emergence of the generally agreed upon next big thing in AI beyond deep learning. I did say there'd be many pretenders to the throne. You look at the comments on my blog, lots of people said, I know what it is. It's my research. (laughs) Of course. One of them will eventually be right. So that's Amara's Law. Now, the next one, Imagining Magic, also harkens back to one of your favorite quotable sources, in this case, Arthur C. Clarke, who said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So how might that lead to a cognitive distortion as people think about where AI is going and also about superintelligence risk? Yeah, so we haven't seen any superintelligence. So we have no prototypes. So if you imagine it exists, if it's indistinguishable from magic, then it can do anything. So the example I like to use is, suppose we had a time machine, why not? And we transport an elderly Isaac Newton from his old times to now, but we do it inside the chapel at Cambridge. He knew the chapel. Old building. He's like, oh, I'm here again. I know this place. Nothing weird. Yeah. Yeah. Make sure the electric lights are switched off and yeah, you yeah. have some candles around. And now you pull out an apple and show it to him, but the apple is an iPhone. Yes. You don't drop it on his head this time. No, you do not. But remember, Newton, besides gravity, he yeah. figured out light. He figured out how you could split up light, optics, and put it back together with prisms. So now you show him this iPhone. It's just a little black device, and then you press the side button, and the screen lights up with incredible detailed light. Like, he has never seen a source of light that looks like that. Wow. Wow. Now you bring up an app and play a movie of an English country scene. So it's just out in the fields with animals that he's seen, and it's playing on this thing. It's moving light. All he could do with his prisms was split it into colors. Now maybe you go into iTunes and you play a piece of church music that he would have been familiar with. That machine can do that. Now you take photos of him and show him photos. You take a little movie and he sees himself. You turn on the flashlight and you show him in the dark corners underneath the pews that you can see stuff. It's a source of light and there are no flames. Oh, and then you go to the web and you find his personally annotated copy of his masterpiece, Principia, with his handwritten notes. And you can go and look at every page. His own handwriting and his own copy is inside this little box. What limits does he understand about that box? What limits? What could it not do? What could it not do? He probably would be flummoxed to realize that it's going to you know, run out of power in a few hours. This powerful machine, and it only works for a few hours, and you got to do something else with it? That's pretty weird. Yeah, because he's never seen anything that has that property before. It just An is. anvil. It is. It just is. He doesn't just keel over and die. Yeah. Yeah. And so he'd get that wrong. Totally. He would not understand that. Now, he would certainly assume that this incredibly powerful thing could light a candle. Yeah, I can do all this other stuff, and it's warm. Yeah. It feels warm. He doesn't know what it can do and what it can't. It seems omnipotent. If you gave him a list of 10 things it could do, five which it could and five which it couldn't, he would have no way of knowing which way to categorize. So applying this to super AI, we can imagine things that would almost surely be able to do. And extrapolating from that, we might imagine it can do anything. Yeah, and that's the argument that I get into with people when I talk about we're not going to have omnipotent AI anytime soon. They say, you don't understand how powerful it's going to be. And these are people who don't necessarily work in AI. You don't understand how powerful it's going to be. Neither do they. They have no clue. 
just like Newton would have no clue of what it could do and what it can't do. Yeah. Because it's so advanced that it's magic. It's nothing we've ever demonstrated anything close to. So you can't say anything rational about its properties. And then the boundaries vanish and we conceive of it as being functionally omniscient and omnipotent almost right out of the box. Yeah. When in reality, if it were to start going down the path to omniscience and omnipotent, there would probably be many side journeys along the way. Exactly. The next one, what you call performance versus competence. I think this is perhaps the most important one. When we see a person perform some task, we have a generally good understanding of what their competence around that task is. So if we see someone who play chess better than anyone else in the world, we think they can probably teach people to play chess. We think they can probably explain to us why a certain move was important. What was the critical move in the whole game and why? Chess playing programs are better than any human and they can't do either of those things. The only, only way they teach people is by clobbering them. Clobbering them. Good game, bad game. You know? yeah. So when we see some program labeling images, young people playing Frisbee in the park, if a person wrote that down in English, those very words, you gave them the image, they wrote that down, you'd expect to be able to talk to them and questions like, what's the weather like in that picture? What sort of day is it? What sort of day is it outside right now? How far could a person throw a Frisbee? Or what is a Frisbee? What's important about a Frisbee to be a Frisbee? You'd expect them to answer all those sorts of questions. Can you eat a Frisbee? Can you eat a Frisbee? Yeah. And the person doing it could. They've got a competence, understanding around frisbeeness if they can label something the programs don't know about weather beyond sometimes using weather words because of some way the image appears but they don't know what weather is they don't know what a person is they don't know what a frisbee is they don't know any yeah. of those things and i'll certainly admit that when i see some of those eerily detailed mappings of descriptions of images that are coming out of the better image identifiers today there is a presumption that when it says a group of young people playing frisbee in the park with a dog that there is a wealth of understanding beneath that. But no, no notion of what a dog is, what a park is, what a Frisbee is. The next one that I think is quite interesting is what you call exponentialism. The tendency to think that all tech, including AI, is exponential in nature because we have been exposed to that so many times and so impressively in such a life-changing way with so many things in technology. So would you like to talk about exponentialism? Yeah, so the example I use is from iPods from the early part of the century where every 12 months for the same price, where they were roughly $400 then, they were coming out with double the memory. And they went from 10 gigabytes to 20 gigabytes to 40 gigabytes. And I projected at the time and raised money for research off this projection that by now we'd have some... I think 160 terabytes. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where we'd be by now. But yeah. we don't. But of the course. top of the line ones today are still 256 gigabytes. And why is that? Because what was driving it was wanting to get people's music collection on, and eventually the music collection fit, and there was no more driver. There's market saturation. Market yeah. saturation. Yeah. So it just stopped. And so we tend to think, oh, it's getting better, better, better. But unless there's a market pull for it, it will stop. And also, we often confuse S-curves for exponential curves. Right. I mean, Moore's Law itself is probably an S-curve, right? Yeah, because yeah. we've gotten to the point where you can't halve the size of the features anymore. You've got to do something different, which yeah. I think is actually a great thing for computer architecture, but that's another whole story. Yeah, yeah. Another example is GPS has gotten better and better and better, but at some point, you don't need sub-micron GPS to yeah. drive your car. It's funny because I made the same mistake that you did in looking at iPods because I was working in online music at the time. And I remember wondering if I'd done the right thing. 
in creating Rhapsody as a streaming service because it seemed unbelievably obvious to me that within 10 years, there'd be no need for streaming. You would just buy a device that came preloaded with all the music ever recorded, which would fit into a disk drive very easily. And you just get these wireless updates whenever Beyonce recorded a new song. I almost got to the point where I was like, we've really blown it here. I mean, we're a little ahead of the curve with Rhapsody, but there's going to be no need for this. Right. So what are the ramifications for those who do think about the existential risk of a notional super AI? Very bright people like Stephen Hawking and Bill Gates and Elon Musk, they have at least three things in common. One, they're all brilliant. Two, they're all very, very concerned about super AI risk. And you pointed out that they have a third thing in common. None of them has worked in AI. I respect all of them greatly, but I think they are making some of these other mistakes. There may be super AI way in the future, but we don't know what the risks are going to look like. You go back to 1789. First hot air balloon is floating over Paris with people in it. And some people worried their souls would get sucked out. What's going to happen to those people up there? I don't think there was a single person in Paris on that day that worried about We have to worry about noise abatement, where these things are ultimately going to land. That's going to be the limiting factor on these things, how much noise they make. That was not the issue. That is an issue. That's why you get so much pushback against an extra runway at so many airports, but you couldn't tell that 220 years ago. And so when I think these things are a longer timescale, we can't begin to understand what the real issues will be. So I think we should be much more worried about other issues that we have in tech, why our infrastructure is so leaky? Why is it that even our home thermostats can be used as attack vectors by putting viruses in them? So I think there are much more immediate questions that come up. How is it that fake news is going to affect our lives and our politics? I think there are a lot of issues that we see problems right today. The problems about super AI are way off in the future, and we can't say anything sensible. So there are a lot of very serious efforts underway right now to mitigate the risk that a future super AI could pose to society. In Berkeley, there's an organization called MIRI, the Machine Intelligence Research Institute. Elon Musk generously funded the Future of Life Institute. Would you say that they're wasting their time? I think they are. Some of these people you named said we have to regulate AI. Mm -hmm. Okay, here's my question. If you're going to have a regulation, and it doesn't change anyone's behavior, there's no point having the regulation. There's only a point if it changes something. What is it you want to change? What is it? Tell me one example of what it is you want to change. I'm not sure how many are arguing for regulation. What I hear more about is what they call the alignment problem. The danger of a super AI having and pursuing goals which are inconsistent with humanity's well-being and perhaps its future existence. Right. And the alignment problem has nothing to do with AI. The alignment problem is a real problem. And the alignment problem exists in Facebook, it exists in Google, it exists in all these platforms. And those companies founded by my friends, I'm not saying they're evil, but there's an alignment problem there. And may, some might argue, destroy our democracy. I imagine some of the people who work in that field might respond something like this. Nobody claims to know precisely when this intelligence explosion will occur. Few of the most concerned people would guarantee with 100% conviction that it's even going to happen. But looking at recent history and the compounding and self-reinforcing effects of technological advancement, we can probably say that arbitrarily amazing things will be possible in the 50 to 100-year time frame, maybe 200-year time frame. Long for a human, but short for humanity. In light of that, what's the argument against working on this problem now? And if now is not the right time frame, 
what sign do we need? What development would it take for us to say, wow, now is time to start thinking about this or working on this or worrying about this? Well, let me take two angles at that. One is I think we were more likely to see earlier than the pure AI something which involves biological material. I think that's a much shorter way to get to it, to renegade intelligence. Biological, really a development of intelligence. Because you could build on intelligence that already exists, you reshape it some way, you're trying to build something. So brain-machine interfaces? Yeah, it could be around that, or it could be just a biologically edited animal. Or organoids. Yeah, I think we're much more likely to see existential risks from them in the short. And you're not talking about bioweapons, you're talking about biological intelligence. Yes. Very interesting, I've never heard that before. Yeah, I think that's much more likely in the short term. I'm personally very good at fretting about synthetic biology, but I've never thought about synthetic biological intelligence. uh, Animals are pretty damn intelligent, they're not that far from us. If you look along the evolutionary chain, so take some existing animal and you give it a few extra things or who knows what that's going to be like. And it could even be purely biological with the power of CRISPR and design. Yeah, That's an earlier existential yep. risk. And we don't really know what that looks like, by the way. You hadn't even thought of it. I hadn't, no. Right. So then we get to an AI system. It's got computers and it's got sensors and it's computational. What are the early warnings that we have to worry about? Self-awareness. Intentionality. A AI program for which tomorrow is different from today. There's no ongoing flow of time. For dogs, there's ongoing flow of time. Certainly for octopuses, which are very different intelligence, evolved completely different from mammals. We don't have anything, anything remotely showing any of those signs. So until you can have dangerous AI, You have to have some sort of ongoing existence, some sort of ability to plan, um, some sort of ability to understand what's happening, some intention. We don't have any of those things, even in a rudimentary form. We don't have them at the level of an insect. So I'm not worried that we're close to it. And furthermore, just like you hadn't thought of the natural intelligence of an animal, I don't think we know what it's going to look like. Until we see some of them, we won't know... That sort's okay, or this sort's starting to look a little bad. Before we have robots that are really dangerous, we're going to have robots that are really annoying. Telemarketing bots. We're going to have all sorts of things along the way. And I think we'll start to understand what the landscape looks like and regulate, as should be. We regulate all our other technologies, except for guns, for some reason. And so it may be a fun game. It's like the trolley problem, indistinguishable from magic. We don't know any properties, so we can imagine any properties we like, which is great for an academic wanting to write papers. If uh, people want to work on the alignment problem, you would rather have them work on the alignments of things that are currently in our world and causing havoc. Causing havoc. Well, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Um, I probably could pose six more hours of questions to you, but I won't do that because we've spent a lot of time together. Thank you very, very kindly for your time. And um, hopefully at some point we can reconnect and talk about some of the other amazing ideas that you've put forth in your blog because there's many, many vectors we didn't even touch on. Yeah, and this has been a really enjoyable conversation, so thank you. Thank you. Rodney's purview into tech's past, present, and future is remarkably deep and wide. And as someone who's done a fair amount of fretting about the potential threats of super AI, my recent 547-page novel being Exhibit A, I take a fair amount of comfort from his sheer lack of concern about risks on this front. But not overwhelming comfort, because I can't think of any other issue in high tech 
which divides quite so many brilliant minds quite so vehemently. Rodney's of course correct that super AI skeptics, including Bill Gates, Elon Musk, and the very recently and very dearly departed Stephen Hawking, were never full-time denizens of this field. But while that limits their direct expertise in it, it also leaves them unconflicted in considering these issues. Upton Sinclair once said that it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it. And many of those who are most dismissive about super AI risks are among those who could gain the most from its rapid and headlong development. That said, Rodney's own salary is in no way dependent upon advances in general artificial intelligence, as he's been a roboticist first and foremost for many, many years. So I'll repeat, the combination of his complete lack of alarm and extreme depth in this field gives me comfort. But I'll also repeat, not total comfort. I'm quite intrigued by Rodney's frontline reports about factory worker shortages as far back as the 90s in what was then the poster child of cheap, abundant labor, China. I've done some digging since our interview and came across a recent-ish article in The Atlantic titled China's Twilight Years, which says that the country's ratio of retirees to active workers will drop as low as 1.6 to 1 within about 20 years. That is an economy which will need help keeping its factories humming, particularly if humanity doesn't get really good at creating robots that can help with elder care, as Rondi so rightly pointed out, because factories are going to have to compete with that very important and burning human need. Now, some listeners may dismiss a roboticist's claims about robots not imperiling factory jobs as being biased or self-serving. However, since our interview, I've tracked down a number of deployments of Rodney's robots on YouTube and elsewhere, and they generally seem to be in roles that enhance the productivity of the humans they share the factory floor with. And this makes sense because remember, these next generation robots are all about flexibility and reprogrammability, and they need human hands and brains to pivot them from task to task and to train and tweak their actions. All of this kind of reminds me of the concerns that accompany the rise of ATM machines. Those little boxes seem to constitute an existential threat to the very title of bank teller. But over the years following their appearance, the number of tellers actually climbed significantly. The reason seemed obvious in retrospect, which was, with ATMs doing the simplest tasks, tellers started focusing on much higher value things, which made them much more valuable to their employers. It's a truism that when something becomes more valuable, we tend to buy more or hire more of it. This was true for tellers after ATMs took over the most mundane aspects of their jobs, and it could be true for many factory workers who team up with robots like Rodney's. A third element of Rodney's thinking that really intrigues me is what he calls exponentialism. Living in these decades of steady, compounding improvement in computer performance has made all of us prone to this. But Moore's law just doesn't apply to everything. Brief periods of rapid development followed by long periods of relative equilibrium are the rule in most dynamic fields. This has in fact been true about biological evolution for billions of years. And more recently, we've seen this in air travel among hundreds of other industries. Planes got much faster quite suddenly when jet engines entered the scene, but they haven't sped up a whole lot since then. Punctuated equilibrium is common even in high-tech realms that we most associate with Silicon Valley. Consider Rodney's own field of robotics. From the time when the first factory robots appeared in a New Jersey car factory in the 60s until just a few years ago, substantially all industrial robots were caged. But just a few swift years after Rodney's company rolled out its first product, thousands of uncaged robots are now strutting their stuff at major industry trade shows. 
Meanwhile, Rodney's point about the seemingly sudden emergence of neural networks in backpropagation is an important lesson for all of us. A 30-year marathon can easily look like a three-year sprint to outsiders, significantly distorting our perspective. And I do hope that some of you now join me on Patreon for quite a few extra thoughts about Rodney and his extraordinary thinking, because there's quite a lot to say. In this bonus content for patrons, I focus mainly on several fascinating essays that Rodney has published on the internet. In preparing to interview him, I quite literally read every blog post that he has ever written, and I was awed by the wide range of topics that he tackles. In the Patreon recording, I talk about the pieces that fascinate me the most. The episode runs almost 20 minutes, so I guess you can kind of think of it as the last quarter of this week's podcast. And once again, to access that, go to patreon.com slash Rob Reed, R-E-I-D. And if you support the podcast at the $5 per month level or above, you can hear that as well as all the extra segments that I posted for other episodes. So, Ars Technica listeners, here we conclude the third and final installment of my interview with Rodney Brooks. Thanks for sitting through that brief description of my Patreon feed at the end. That was recorded back in March, and if you're interested, a couple things have since changed about my Patreon feed. And if you are not interested, no hard feelings. Please join me back next week on Ars, and feel free to turn this off right now. But if you're interested, I enabled this really cool feature. Um, on Patreon, which let me set up a private podcast feed uh, for each individual who's subscribed to the extra bits of my content. So that stuff now flows right into a smartphone as if it's a completely separate podcast. Um, So to hear something, you don't have to go to the Patreon site, log in and hit play, which was always just a lot of friction. You can actually hear stuff in your phone when you're on the go, like any other podcast. And it's a totally separate feed. Um, it, the feed is called Rob Reed. I probably just, you probably just named after me, I guess. Um, but it's a separate feed. It's not in the afternoon feed. So you don't, you don't get confused about what's the main episode, what's an extra. It works really great. I was thrilled when I set it up and saw how it just elegantly popped into my phone. Um, so hats off to Patreon for building that. Um, the other slight episode about Patreon since I first posted this interview is that I've now done bonus segments for 10 episodes. So there's hours and hours and hours of stuff up there now if you are in fact interested. And it's always a little bit different. Sometimes I interview a second expert about the interview that's in the main podcast feed. Sometimes I pull together a very high density set of follow-on thoughts and conclusions, which is what I did for the Rodney Brooks episode. And there's actually a ton of really cool Rodney-related stuff in there that we didn't have time for in the episode itself. And then this week, this current week, I did something completely different and fun for my interview with Stuart Brand, which is live in my podcast feed as I sit here recording this, uh, and will be live in my podcast feed if you listen to this roughly on the day when it gets posted. For the Stuart Brand episode, I posted this highly extended version of the interview for my patrons, um, because Stuart and I just sat down and talked for hours. So while the interview in the public podcast feed is about 90 minutes, which is definitely not short to begin with, the Patreon version is way over two hours. It's like 50% longer, and it's really lively. And that was kind of a fun experiment. People seem to be enjoying it. I'm guessing 
Many of you know who Stuart Brand is. If not, if you heard last week's episode here on ours with George Church, Stuart is the guy who's working with George to resurrect extinct species like the woolly mammoth. He also has lived this wildly impactful and influential life in tech, in science, and in culture, going clear back to the 60s. So it was one of the most amazing conversations I've ever had with someone who's frankly one of my heroes. And you can find that right now in my main podcast feed at after-on.com or search in your phone, etc. Anyway, I hope you'll join me back here on ours next week when we will continue this experiment in lunchtime serialization. I'm bringing another episode from my archives. It's one of my favorites. It's a conversation with Mary Lou Jepson, who is an amazing entrepreneur, engineer, and thinker. And if you're interested in neuroscience, if you're interested in holography, if you're interested in telepathy, and who is not interested in one of those things, I believe you'll enjoy it a ton. I hope you join us.